0: The thing that what makes me love this country so very much is the aspiration and the sense of possibility. I subscribe to the relatively controversial notion, or at least I find it attractive, that there's a genetic mutation for entrepreneurship that is related to and expressed through hypomania. So hypomania is a little bit of craziness where you really wanna do these entrepreneurial things. It's extremely unusual in populations, in European and other populations. If you create a place where the hypomanics who've got this genetic mutation are gonna go, from all different cultures, from all different races, from all different regions, and then you make that into a country, what was once the mutation becomes the norm. That's also known as America, but woe be unto you, that mutation will work itself out of your culture, out of your country over a few generations, unless you continue to cultivate it and to magnetize your country for it by making it an idea. And what I'm talking about is immigration. That's the reason that we need lots of immigration. We need lots of hustlers. We need lots of dreamers.
1: Hi, you're listening to Keeping It Civil, a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. I'm your host, Duncan Mitch. In this podcast, I interview scholars, writers, and intellectuals about the American political tradition and the state of intellectual life in the United States. The point of the podcast is to have an intellectual exchange of views on political, civic, and social issues in American life. Many of the guests on the podcast are part of the school's speaker series, which invites both liberal progressives and conservative voices that we feel are important for the advancement of civil and liberal education today. On today's podcast, I'll be speaking with Arthur Brooks, formerly the president of the American Enterprise Institute and now a professor of practice in the field of public leadership at Harvard University's Kennedy School. Brooks is the author of Gross National Happiness, Why Happiness Matters for America and How We Can Get More of It, and... Most recently, Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. Before we get started with the interview, please, if you haven't already, tell your friends about the podcast and leave us a review. Positive reviews allow new people to find us and help us grow the audience. Okay, enough exposition. Arthur Brooks Let's start with your transformation from liberal hippie in the Seattle area to president of AEI.
0: Yeah, I grew up in Seattle, Washington, which is the most progressive place in America, arguably. You at think least so? one of them. Yeah, I think I mean as I've seen the data on it and suggests that it's the most secular place in the United States and where there's the most uniformly politically progressive views and it wasn't that way when I was a kid exactly but it was certainly on its way to it my dad was a college professor my mother was an artist there was no economics in my family there was no business background in my family there was nothing uh, nothing like that as a matter of fact when I was a kid there was really only one thing I was going to do I was going to be a musician that's all I cared about I just wanted to play music I' got crazy about it I started violin when I was four and piano when I was five took up the French horn when I was nine and that's the one that really stuck because I was pretty good at it and from the time I was I don't know 10 11 years old I wanted to be the greatest French horn player in the world. It's a great question. That country, is a really
1: it? specific goal. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I can't, the, yeah, yeah. The, the, there aren't too many people growing up with that goal.
0: Well, you know, everybody's got one. And the great thing about the United States is that you can imagine these weird things. And in the classical music culture, you know, there's a few. So I went through classical music training, worked with the guys who played in the Seattle Symphony and played in the youth orchestras, and, you know, I did nothing but music. Um, I went away to college when I was 18. I went to California Institute of the Arts in, in Los Angeles and immediately dropped all my required classes so I could study North Indian classical drumming and Indonesian dance, which turns out is not the right strategy for success in college, uh, quickly made known to me by the administration of the college, and they invited me to earn my success elsewhere, put it that way.
1: Did they actually use that term, earn my no, success? No, I feel like that's your term. No, no so... they called no,
0: call uh, call it academic probation. So, <laughs> so I, I actually left, I, I dropped out before I could get myself kicked out, and I went on the road um, playing for a living from when I was 19 years playing old. Playing the but, horn. Playing the horn. Because I, I, that is
1: not something I think of playing on the road.
0: Yeah, no. I mean, I wasn't a rock and roller. I was a classical musician. I was playing chamber music. Um, I did a couple of years touring also with Charlie Bird, who's a jazz guitar player. and did a couple of albums with him and, and did a lot of concerts with him too. But basically spent the next 12 years making my living as a French horn player. So after six, halfway through that, I met a girl when I was on tour in France, chamber music tour in France. She lived in Barcelona. I didn't speak a word of English, but I set this goal. I was going to get this girl to marry me. And so I quit my job.
1: How long into the relationship?
0: A week. (laughs) And she didn't know this, and she didn't speak any English at all, not one word, and she didn't live in the United States. But I laid my plans, I quit my job. I found a job in the Barcelona Symphony and moved to Spain and then tried to close that, the deal. That's,
1: that whole sequence is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Everything about that yeah, is, it's is, a, it's ab- totally is totally ridiculous. absurd. You got to go – Because symphony jobs are not easy to get. Now,
0: that was – you know, I think God was looking after that one. You know, the idea that it's like, He smile on me. I mean, I think I'm going to try to get this girl to marry me. And it's like, yeah, here's a job in the Barcelona Orchestra. It was weird how that worked out. That was really weird. Uh, also, Super weird. Yeah, yeah. It took me about a year and a half to close the deal, but we just were celebrating our 28th wedding anniversary this year. A
1: year and a half. Doesn't seem like a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, No, no, it was too long for me, though. I wanted it.
0: I wanted it. Wow. Like yesterday. You were that sold. Totally. I was already. 25 years old, and I was ready, ready to lock down.
1: What were your politics when you married her? Or, or when you met her, I should say, excuse me.
0: Well, what they had always been my whole life, which is kind of just by flavor, liberal, progressive, left wing.
1: By your own description at that time. Yeah,
0: yeah, for sure. And, and the reason is because I didn't know anybody who wasn't. It's not that I was particularly political. I was, a, I was a musician. But I thought what everybody thought, which is that capitalism is a sham. It's a way for rich people to stay rich and to keep poor people poor. You know, it's just what everybody thought in my world. And so a better world would be a more socialist world, where, by the way, the government would give tons of money to the arts.
1: <laughs> well, it's a good reason for you to have thought that.
0: I suppose, although, you know, it wasn't particularly well thought out. It was just when I was in Barcelona, I had this incredible epiphany, which was, you know, I decided I wanted to go back to college, but I had no money. So, I, somebody suggested I study by correspondence. And I took a bunch of correspondence courses, and to do a bachelor's degree, I had to take some stuff that wasn't music. And I took these economics courses, and my mind was completely blown.
1: And this must have been very early online. This wasn't online. online. It wasn't online oh, no, no, it was cor- online, yeah. Okay, so what did a correspondence course so look you like you get then? a
0: bunch of books and study guides in the mail, and then I would fax my assignments to these professors living all over the country. So, I was Basically, cruising for the correspondence courses that were the most economical ones I could find at 10, 12 universities. I mean, Cheap at University of Wyoming, Brigham Young, University of Washington, these different, very divergent ones. And then I would bank the credits at this alternative school called Thomas Edison State College in Trenton, New Jersey. They would bank the credits from any accredited yeah, school. Yeah, i never heard of that one. Yeah. And it's, it turns out it's the second largest university in New Jersey because it's for alternative learners. A lot of people in the, in the military, stuff like that. But at the time, this was completely unknown.
1: And you swear by this, right? So this was a positive experience for a Documented
0: facts, yeah. And I never set foot. I got my bachelor's degree that way, never having set foot in a classroom or set in one lecture. And I had moved, my wife and I moved back to the States after in the middle of this thing, I taught at a conservatory in Florida, gave me plenty of time to work on my bachelor's degree at night. And when I was doing it, I had this big intellectual epiphany. In classical music, my favorite composer was Johann Sebastian Bach. I mean, everybody knows Bach. Even if you don't know music, you know Bach. You know Bach. Everybody loves Bach. 1685 to 1750. This guy was an incredible innovator in the high baroque. Unbelievably productive. He also, by the way, had 20 kids, which is productive. Yeah, I'll say.
1: I I feel a little bit sad for his wife there. but had
0: two. two. I mean, his first wife was the mother of his first 13, and then she passed away. No kidding. And then his second wife uh I mean, mother of his sense. last seven. Ten of his children lived to adulthood. Um, uh, several of them were really, really famous composers in their own right, as a matter of fact. But Bach was asked before the end of his life, and I remember this key moment where I was reading Bach's biography. Mm-hmm. And Bach was asked, why do you write music? And this is a really interesting thing because everybody asks you what you do. They ask you and me, what do you do? And you say, oh, I'm a college professor, whatever. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever asked you, why do you do what you do? And Bach was asked, why do you write music? And his answer was, the aim and final end of all music is nothing less than the glorification of God and the refreshment of the soul. And, and if it's you're not religious, good it's a pretty good answer for one sentence. And so if you're not religious, you don't get hung up on it. It's basically the purpose of work is to serve. And I thought, can I say that? And the answer was no. So I decided to dedicate myself to something that I really thought could serve the world. And I had been learning this stuff about economics. It was just so shocking to me. Mm -hmm. I had learned, for example, during this period that four-fifths of starvation-level poverty had been eradicated since I was a kid. The world was positively, unambiguously getting better. And I had no idea that billions, two billion, my brothers and sisters, had been pulled out of poverty since I was a kid. Incredible! Mm -hmm. And it was because of... The free enterprise system. There's all this stuff too. But it was basically globalization, free trade, property rights, the rule of law, the culture of entrepreneurship spreading around the world is pulling two billion people out of poverty. Poor people. I'm like, dude, I want that. I'm a I'm a hippie, man. I want <laughs> okay, I want to lift people up. it's interesting people...
1: but, but you were receptive to that because when you focus on what's going on in most of academia right yeah. most departments in academia, I would even in the social sciences at this point would portray things almost the
0: reverse of what you just said yeah well, and that's the advantage of studying my correspondence. I had no culture, I had no professors, I had textbooks that's it. And so I was able to just look at the facts and come to my own conclusions, plus the fact that I was starting my bachelor's degree when I was 28, which is a good time to do it because you're kind of a grown-up. I'm still kind of a grown-up, but... I graduated a month before my 30th birthday. So I did it real fast. But yeah, you got a really I, late I, start in I terms I of your education. It. Yeah, totally. And so, you know, graduation day for me was walking out in my slippers to my mailbox and picking up my diploma that was marching for me. But and, you did a PhD, so... Yeah, no, so that, that happened you, afterwards. When, so the whole when, point was I decided, because of Bach, to leave music and to dedicate myself to spreading these ideas that could lift more people out of poverty and give more people lives of dignity. That's what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And so I went and got a master's degree in economics, and then I got my PhD in public policy and became a college professor.
1: And when did you you finish the PhD? By what age, given that you finished your bachelor's at 30? 34. How is it possible?
0: My wife was super pregnant, and I needed to get done. And So So you entered
1: into a a program. You didn't do a master's at a different location. I did. I did did. did. a
0: master's in one year, then I made a PhD in three. Yeah, it was fast. It was fast. And I'm not going to argue that I did the best work I possibly could have. But I got signatures on my dissertation that gave me the PhD. It's almost unheard of. Three years, almost unheard of. Yeah, but I was in a hurry. And I'm glad I did. Then I went and taught at Georgia State University for three years. Then after that, I taught at Syracuse for seven and a half. Then they came to, I'm president of the American Enterprise to do for the last 10. It's a great life well, and this I mean, is a It's a great country. Yeah,
1: it's a pretty amazing story. I feel very blessed. Yeah very, yeah. very lucky. I mean it's a very American story. Yeah. At least in the positive sense, yeah, right? for, but, for uh, sure, yeah, it's a for unique sure. one. Yeah. For yeah. academia, it's a unique one for music. Yeah. It's a unique one for uh, nonprofits.
0: But what I hear a lot of people and, and a lot of people listening to us have a crazy life story. You know, they've done a lot of different things. When I look at graduates today, they're most likely going to have nine completely radically different jobs and four distinct careers. Mm-hmm. That's what the world is containing. And, and having fungible skills where you're, you have ambition and you have a sense of optimism and hope and you want to serve other people and you want to really lift up the world, that's what everybody's looking for. And you go you go from one so? thing to another. I do. I mean, I do think that that's – the problem is they don't know where to get it. And so they're arguing about all the dumb, wrong stuff. That's where they're beating each other up, blowing each other Interesting. up. Interesting. Okay. I think but the let's, people let's are fundamentally good.
1: Yeah. I guess I have a hard time seeing this to a mm-hmm. certain extent. So, yeah, I mean, I Just it. looking at some of your own work, I was reading one of your pieces for The Times about uh, narcissism. Mm-hmm. And, there, and obviously, it's pretty easy to place the rise of narcissism with the rise of social media. That's not a hard association <laughs> to make. It's an accelerant for yeah, narcissism, right, for, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Obviously, most people's impression of the upcoming generations, millennials and iGen, Gen Z, they, these generations are totally self-consumed. And I don't find that yeah. teaching them to be completely true. But I do think the maturity levels are dramatically lower than they used to be. And I do think some level of self-consumption, and I do mean that in every sense of the word, both turning inward gaze and also more negative self-defeating habits, that these things are on the rise. So when you say that underneath that is... A fundamentally positive outlook,
0: maybe is that the right word? No, there's a fundamentally positive moral impetus. There's a moral consensus, deep moral consensus that I think that we largely share. There are pathologies to be sure. There are pathologies with almost every generation. My kids will say, We all got issues. Sure. And the issues from the current generation are really, really tricky. I mean, the biggest problem that we have among millennials, people in their 20s today, and then people a little bit younger, is unhappiness. The truth of the matter is that when you're thinking about yourself and when you're encouraged, technologically encouraged, to think about yourself, to display a fake life and consume the fake lives of others, you're going to be miserable. And the result of that is sort of self evident at this point. You find that, depending on the data that you look at, people in the 20s today are 30. 30% less likely to be in love than people were. Look, when I tell people the story about how I met my wife and chased her to Spain, knew her for a week, Got all in. They're like, that's nuts. That's crazy. And it,
1: it is right. That's yeah. a little it, crazy. It but you know, look, like a lot. Of, I mean, I bet yeah. you've had a
0: love story like that. I mean, I but you did you took some big risks with your heart.
1: I have. Yeah, sure. People have stories like this. But all not know, the today. Di- this is the problem. This young is the problem. I mean, yeah, the digital age is yeah. dramatically affecting things. It's I mean, made the, people the swiping really. They're com- too
0: conservative. Young yeah. people today are too conservative, and this is the big hmm. problem that we face. So, I wouldn't have thought you would use that. Yeah, they're too. They're not con- willing to take risks, and and part of it is there's a people. People in my generation have a tendency to keep their kids in a cocoon. I mean, when you try to talk to people over forty and you say, well, What was the first time you went out of the house on an errand by yourself? It's like, I don't know, six And you ask people, young people under 30, it's like 14. And so there's a safety culture. Then on college campuses with the safe spaces and the trigger warnings and the the complete reluctance to let anybody have a competition of ideas, that's not leftism. That's just safety. That's a security obsession. And so the result of that is that people come out of college and they've never been exposed to pathogens. People come out with kind of the social equivalent of a peanut allergy. And so the result is that in their 20s, and they're super afraid to have a relationship, they're super afraid to get rejected in ways that you and I are like, part of love is getting rejected, man. And learning that you get rejected and you don't die. That's actually part of life. And there's just a a big, there's a part of the software code that's missing in a lot of people today. And that's a big problem. So the result is self-reinforcing with social media, but social media is kind of downstream from a lot of these cultural elements. And I do believe that we want a lot of the same things morally, but that there's these particular pathologies that are standing in the way of it, and what you and I get to do as academics is that we get to bring people to their highest moral calling and to sing a little song that sort of deeply resonates with these hearts. Bring along the next generation. When
1: was the last time you were teaching in academia?
0: So ten years ago, but I'm going yeah. back. So I'm I'm actually going back to academia in July of 2019. Yeah, I'm Where at? Leaving, at Harvard. Oh, so I have a professorship yeah. at the. Oh, Kennedy just School. Harvard. Yeah. yeah it's, a, it's right. a little place in yeah, someplace in the Northeast.
1: I think things have changed quite a bit over the last ten years. Yeah, I mean the intolerance has really. I mean I think it changed. And I've talked to quite a few people about this trying to figure it out. And I think it changed dramatically between 2000 and 2010. And I think it's gotten definitely got exponentially worse between 2010, and 2015.
0: Well, I agree. Well, I agree. Like I'm on campuses a lot for my work because I do about 175 talks a year. And so I'm on campuses very, very frequently. And I've seen the change. But I also think that that has crested. And I think a lot of young people are like, this is stupid that we're being told by our, our, our professors are trying to fire us up and tell us that we have to hate people who disagree with us. That's actually wrong. And so I think that we'll look back on the current period of bitterness and hatred and hating each other and barring speakers from saying dangerous, controversial things on campuses. We're going to look back on it as kind of quaint in the same way that people will look back to the summer of love in Berkeley and go, ugh. So, I mean, really? I hope
1: you're right. I mean, I think it's going to be a very long, long process of getting it back there. Obviously, being somewhat on the front lines of it. I think. Do you see it and, here at Arizona State? I, I don't think Arizona State has that culture. I mean, I'm sure it has it in certain departments that I'm unfamiliar with, and probably far more of it than I'm aware of, maybe on certain individual levels, but not necessarily amongst the students. A lot of that culture is really going on, as you probably already know, at elite schools. Yeah. So amongst, frankly, the very wealthy, the uber-protected, and the people who've had no exposure to Contrary ideas:
0: That's right. I mean, in the culture of being really radical was pretty cutting edge at major private research universities some years ago, and now the, the ones that lag are the private liberal arts colleges where they always kind of lag the cultural tendencies of, of the Harvards and Princeton. yeah. And so those are the ones that are most intolerant today are the private liberal arts colleges, particularly in the Northeast. I have a colleague named Sam Abrams who teaches at Sarah Lawrence, but he also is a scholar at AEI. And he's done this work on it. He's like, you look at these private four-year liberal arts colleges in the Northeast. And, and those are the ones that are looking an awful lot like the Ivies were six or seven years ago for the climate of ideas. And now at Harvard, they're trying to recruit people who think differently on purpose to get better competition of ideas. That's the cutting edge.
1: Interesting. So I, think I wasn't that, aware that extra yeah, process was starting.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it's slow, and it's going to be clumpy, and there's going to be paroxysms of these types of things going on for a long time. But I actually think that the new wave, and so people who want to be really super modern about this are going to be like, yeah, no, no, I demand a competition of ideas. Not that I don't want anybody to agree, but I demand to be around people who think differently than me, because that's the ultimate way to embrace diversity, It's idea diversity, and that's a very beautiful and good thing.
1: There's a very specific ideology surrounding the concept of diversity that resists the idea that diversity is intellectual diversity. And also even has a very specific concept of culture that really doesn't even necessarily attach to ideas. Yeah, but that's pretty
0: exotic. It doesn't really translate very well down to kind of how students see, feel, and think. I think that the change at universities always winds up coming from the inmates. And so the students will be like, I refuse to be miserable like you're telling me to be. I just won't. I just refuse to put up with you telling me I'm a permanent victim and I have to be mad all the time. And that will be kind of a fun rebellion. Well, I think it's already happened. I mean,
1: I agree with you that I can see it in many of my students. Sometimes they'll come and they'll tell you these things under a whisper. I don't really buy yeah, 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 I don't really think this way because they know they're not yeah. supposed to tell the lie yeah
0: no that's like the equivalent of passing around Sammy's dot literature you know in the, in the old Soviet Union mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like no 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 we all believe in freedom that's happening less and that's where you see it as cresting. yeah yeah I totally do I think that basically we're about two years past the worst point in the intolerance of a competition of ideas and they're gonna be flare ups for sure that means that certain colleges it's still the worst is yet to come at the universities that we're talking about. Look, the sensible places where people just want to get a good education, like Arizona State University, never really were barbecued by this problem. And the great elite universities, private universities, also known as the really expensive ones, because they're starting to get their idea clear on how we train people best to be good citizens.
1: But don't you think also that there's certain disciplines and certain departments that are eventually going to work their way out of business, for lack of a better phrase? (laughs) Give me an example. Well, I mean, obviously, most of the traditional humanities departments are really suffering in terms of enrollment. If you don't have enrollment, you're eventually going to fold. I mean, mean, They're not going to be able to have hires. They're not going to be able to hire new faculty lines. You can only have so many conferences if you have no students. And a lot of these departments have been buttressed for a long time by bigger departments like subfields of history or any of the studies departments, etc. But as history wanes, as English wanes.
0: Yeah, I hear you. I don't think that they're going out of business. I think what they're doing is resizing to the right equilibrium. Mm -hmm. See, what's happened is over the past... 50 years, the percentage of the American population going to college has massively increased. But that doesn't mean that all fields and sub and specialties and departments and colleges have to all increase by the same rate. It's sure. going to be inequality in that. What probably in equilibrium will happen is the massive increase will be in STEM fields. And part of the reason is because that's what matches why do kids go to college? And part of it is just the love of learning. I got my oldest son is a junior in college. He just isn't crazy about learning. I mean, he's just a glutton for information.
1: But most well, That's that's the time to be. Totally, absolutely. But
0: you're not going to expect everybody who's going to college to do that. They want to work for a living, and they want to be trained to work. You're going to have people in the arts and humanities, which is fabulous, but it's not going to increase at the same rate as people who are going to college to get the job training to be doing things that actually work in the modern economy. So I think in equilibrium that we'll see a lot of these humanities feel right-sizing, but not disappearing. The job markets will be equilibrated so that you won't have five times as many PhDs coming out in art history as jobs available and things like that. And so it'll well, be there's better. There's
1: a great irony in that, in the sense that a lot of these social justice, quote-unquote, oriented fields, are really eating their own children, and yet they've been allowing tons more people in so that they can use them for cheap teaching of these undergrad courses. And then also they're doubly harming a lot of these students by having too many people on the market for an ever-shrinking job field. There's some incredible irony here.
0: But this is kind of how, you know, markets go in and out of equilibrium. So it's, you know, the classic thing where society through demographic change will have boatloads of kids, the baby boom, right after World War II. And there's there's a huge shortage of teachers. They can't get enough teachers. So they have class sizes of 40 and 50 kids, and they have kids sitting out in the hall. So immediately start building tons of schools and getting and creating incentives for as many people to go into, into teaching. Arizona State University until 1958 or 1959 was a teacher's college. It was a teacher's university. And the reason was it was in direct result of the baby boom. Everybody having tons of kids. We needed lots and lots of teachers in Arizona. People moving to Arizona, we need lots of teachers. Okay. Well, then after that, then there's a baby bust. And then you got too many teachers. And then they can't find jobs and they're not and they're like people don't have benefits for the teachers anymore and people are like we don't love our teachers and so then the reaction to that is we unionize our teachers to make sure that those who are in a really good position can demand the right benefits so you institutionalize what you're getting as opposed to relying on markets and then in the meantime people start having a lot of kids again and it just goes in and out this is pretty normal it waxes and wanes and those are the dynamics that make markets the reason that we see what in our economy today I don't think there's anything really surprising about that we'd see it in higher ed as well it higher it adjusts slowly.
1: Very, very slowly. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of what I'm trying to allude to is like, you would think that more would have changed more quickly by now. I, uh, mean, I don't like-
0: know. I mean, it's like, you know, if you go back 300 years, when Harvard started 1636, we're on the cusp of the 400th anniversary. And there's been a lot of stuff that actually still is the same. It's a very slow moving industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's also- not entirely open to market signals in the way that say the software industry would be sooner or later, it more or less catches up with the needs of students. I'm not pessimistic. I'm actually really hopeful.
1: You don't strike me as a very pessimistic person. Yeah, not so much. You're listening to Keeping It Civil. I'm Duncan Minch, and today I'm speaking with Arthur Brooks.
2: I'm Paul Carice, director of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. We launched Keeping It Civil because we believe in the power of intellectual dialogue to both renew our civic life and remind us of the value of liberal arts learning. At the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership, we are restoring space for civil discourse across divergent views on human, civic, and academic issues. Our majors and minors undertake a liberal education to discuss moral and political thought, economic thought, and America's ideals and constitutional principles. They study important historical moments in leaders, and they experience leadership challenges through special seminars, internships, and programs. This broad foundation prepares them to be ethical, adaptive leaders in their chosen professions or civil society or in public affairs. We hope you'll learn more about the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University by visiting SCETL.ASU.edu. The School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University, a new class of leaders. Welcome back. You're
1: listening to Keeping It Civil. Now we will continue our conversation with Arthur Brooks. I haven't got a chance to read your new book because we haven't got a copy of I it. Mean, yeah. It's not out, <laughs> right? We didn't get an advance copy. Yeah, yeah, right.
0: yeah. So We're recording this what, a month and almost well, a month and a half before, before the release.
1: I haven't seen an advance copy. I'm going to guess that you're optimistic that we can solve our civic dialogue crisis. No, but I mean you're. I
0: get it. Actually, I'm not optimistic. I'm hopeful. To be hopeful means something can be done and we can do something about it. Optimistic is to say you think things are going to be okay. I don't know. I sort of suspect so, but not a level of optimism, but I'm really hopeful because I think there's tons of things that we can do. That's what you're trying to do with this podcast, mm-hmm. is to bring hope on the basis of empowerment to make civic dialogue more possible by giving people the tools to do it, right?
1: I think sometimes leading by example is enough.
0: Oh, it sure leadership. can be, particularly yeah. if you're in a position of authority, if you're in a position of leadership. People are prone to mimicry, and they Absolutely. mimic the lives and behaviors of leaders. So when leaders are virtuous, and when leaders show love, And when leaders are fighting for the radical equality of human dignity, and when leaders show that they believe in the limitlessness of human potential, then people start to think that way too. That's the most powerful tool we have.
1: I think some of the problem is that for a long time, our dialogue was just cable news back and forth, the crossfire model. But then also, academia has not helped, right? right? Because there's all the intolerance that we just discussed. What are the other factors that you think got us to this place?
0: Well, this is actually quite common in the wake of a financial crisis. So in a financial crisis, which happens a couple of times a century, you usually have 10 years, even more sometimes, 15 years, where virtually all of the fruits of economic growth go to the top 20% of the income distribution. And the result of that is populism, is political populism where people are reacting. And so it's right-wing populism, left-wing populism. It's all the same. Somebody's got your stuff and I'm going to go get it back, whether it's immigrants or foreigners or bankers or rich people or whatever. Somebody's got your stuff, which is the reason that you're not enjoying the fruits of economic growth. And the truth is, macroeconomically, we don't know how to make even economic growth throughout the population in the wake of a financial crisis. So there's no great, terrible movement afoot. There's not the Illuminati or the Rothschilds or something doing this. It's just a macroeconomic problem. But the result is that you always see populism. And the populism is what actually drives this. And then everything is downstream from that. People listening to us, they can think of a politician in the Democratic or Republican Party who's really super angry and snarky and populist and firing people up and creating the wrong. Incentives for people to behave in bad ways. Those people are total symptoms of the problem. Their politicians are created by the culture, and they influence the culture too. But they're largely created by the culture. The technology feeds into it as well. You basically have an infrastructure, uh, particularly driven by social media, where people can silo their news consumption and all of their information, such that everything they hear reinforces what they thought before. That's a really destructive thing. But it, it was created, and people are consuming it because of the fundamental bitterness and populism in the moment that we have right now.
1: I think that there's a positive side to some populism. I mean, I'm thinking of somebody like Christopher Lash, who's certainly one of the most articulate advocates of populism. Now, he uses it in a way that most people don't. You know, there's, there's... He
0: rebels against the elites. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's a
1: rebellion against yeah. the elites, and it's also in a, a return to a traditional value system and also a back-to-basics sort of outlook that maybe is a ideological and cultural correction that is needed.
0: Maybe. You know, and there, there's all kinds of ethical populism. I mean, people can, demand to be in a culture where they love their neighbor and they're tired of being pushed around by these very leaders. One of the things that you find typically in American culture is that the populism is a disequilibrated state. It's not the state of nature for Americans. It's the state of nature for the French, but not for Americans. Americans are not populists. On average, I mean, I saw this survey at one point that asked, what's your view on some of the richest people in the world? And, you know, the French, what's your view of Bill Gates? And it's basically like, let's burn his house down and take his stuff, right? Americans are like, I hope my kid is the next Bill Gates. That's how Americans typically think. It's it's aspirational. And 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 it's non-populist. Aspiration is basically a killer for populism because people want to be able to get ahead. Now, that requires that we have a system that makes it possible for people to earn their success, to be sure. And those pathways have been foreclosed too often for too long, especially in the wake of the financial crisis. So I completely get that. But I think that the backlash against populism is a kind of a different sort of ethical populism where, especially young people, it's going to be driven by your and my students, are going to say, I just refuse to hate my neighbors. I just refuse. And I look at the data today, and I see it coming, man. I, this is what really gives me energy. But it's
1: interesting that you say that, you phrase it as, refuse to hate my neighbor, because that's one specific form of populism. That's a xenophobic or specifically racist form of populism. Populism doesn't have to be that.
0: Well, left-wing populism is the same way. It's I hate my neighbor if my neighbor's got some something I don't have, for example. It's somebody who's been successful. Or ideologically, in the some, yeah, of yeah, it, totally. some, some of it. Right, sure. and, and the populism or the manifestation of that intolerance that you see on college campuses White that we were talking about before is, privilege. is, yeah, I mean, it's basically populism tends to be manifest in identity politics, and identity politics is very amply distributed across right and left in America today. The concept is populism and identity politics, not right-left. So people are going to fight back against that because they don't like it. People are going to figure out that siloing your, your news feeds, that reinforcing your preconceived notions on social media, that curating your friends, that only hearing people who tell you to fire up and be angry all the time, it leads to an outrage culture which is completely unpleasant. And we're hurting our kids by doing that. And they're not going to stand for it forever.
1: So allow me to be skeptical for a yeah, moment. Yeah, for here. sure. So the filter bubble that you described, you have heard that term, I'm sure. Yeah, you're right. I think it's you know encapsulates all of the different elements of social media that you were pointing mm-hmm. at. People like you and me who are very educated and more aware, we might push back against it, and we might raise our children to push back against it. But aren't we being perhaps a little Pollyanna to think that other people who don't even know that they're in a filter bubble? when I've asked students, if they're aware when they search in Google that their results are all tailored to them, I've been shocked at how many hands go up and that they're not aware.
0: That's pretty typical. I mean, that's pretty typical. And that's the reason that these movements towards something better, they require leaders. They require people to say, I've got a better future. Do you want to come with me? And, you know, some people will say, I didn't realize that I was living in an environment that was suboptimal. I didn't realize that I was in a man-made prison this whole time. I didn't realize. But when somebody can, that's, what leaders do is they describe what the better future looks like and say, do you realize that you can live in a culture that has more love in it? You can live in a culture where you're talking to people who think differently and it's enriching you. Do you want that? And that's the reason why well, I agree that, that people want it. requires moral leadership from those of us that are in positions of authority, for sure, but to empower our students to do that as well. Think different. Be an entrepreneur. Get followers and be an entrepreneur for good. You know, be an entrepreneur having the enterprise of making life better for other people. And if that happens. You know, that's how social movements actually work. So we think of entrepreneurship as being around, around commercial movements. And to a certain extent, we can think about entrepreneurship as being around intellectual movement. But I'm talking about entrepreneurship around the social movement of improving human dignity and happiness. And that's a social movement. That's really yeah, refining so that's for
1: interesting. It. I don't think of entrepreneurship in terms of a social, cultural, or leadership element. I'm not yeah. saying that you're wrong. Yeah. It's a fascinating yeah, idea. Yeah, no, no,
0: it's a new idea, an idea that people typically don't think of. But entrepreneurship is about putting your capital at risk, relying on resources not in hand in the the quest for explosive rewards. I didn't say a word about money.
1: Explosive rewards. Explosive
0: rewards. That's what entrepreneurs—they want explosive rewards, right? They want something big. And so I want to put my capital at risk. Like my reputation, my family life, my social life, my religious life my belief system, or my money. right mean, Their money's at the least in it. I'm going to rely on stuff I don't have in hand. I'll get it. I'll make it come together, because I want something that's radically better. Now, nothing has to do necessarily with money, and so that's the reason that the great social entrepreneurs, you know, Martin Luther King, put all of his capital at risk. He opened himself up to the risk of assassination, which indeed occurred at the end. He believed... The ultimate risk. Yeah, he believed in resources that were not in hand, that people were going to follow him, even though he didn't know who they were, and they did, in search of explosive rewards, which which he didn't get in his lifetime, but which we get today. 95% of Americans are favorable, love the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King. It was 33% when he died. He got explosive returns simply after he died, but he was the quintessential social entrepreneur. We're not going to be King. We're not going to be Nelson Mandela. We're not going to be...
1: Well, I think that's one of the things that's interesting. Gandhi. Gandhi in our, yeah, that's, but it, we can
0: be in our little way.
1: Yeah, definitely in our little way. I mean, but this is one of the things I think is interesting about universities is that there's this constant desire to tell students that they can. I mean, that this was literally the model of the university I just came from was what happens here changes the world. It's a half-truth and you can understand why they want to portray it that way. But I'm not sure that that concept doesn't also feed into a certain kind of level of solipsism and self-indulgence and like this idea that I think is actually part and parcel of the problem of identity politics in general and our divide is this idea of right belief and call-out culture, right? Right. And and this happens on the right, not just the left. If you don't believe the correct things i must come down upon you because your beliefs change the world
0: it's also virtue signaling so people are the outrage culture is particularly in social media where unless you're screaming it means you don't care and that's just because there's been an inflation, an emotional inflation. And that's so you hit the virtue signal by ruining somebody else's life, by screaming at somebody and saying they're a Nazi. I mean, it's like, come on, man. I mean, that's just basically, that's like the Zimbabwean currency of emotions, right. so, you know, which is kind of what, what, kind of what we get. But it's true, you know, that one of the things that we do is we tell people that if they're not changing the world, they're not doing anything. Well, at the same time, we give them no tools to change themselves. The most important thing, it's really interesting, people often ask, because when I came to AEI as president almost 11 years ago, I had never managed a single employee and never raised a single dollar. It was completely new to me. So people will often ask, like, wow, what did you learn? And the answer is, I learned how to lead myself. I learned how to manage myself. That's the most important thing that I learned is how to manage my energy, how to manage my emotions, how to manage the perception other people have of me. That's the most important thing. In other words, I was an entrepreneur to me. That's the An key. entrepreneur to yourself. An entrepreneur to himself. I mean, it's like, that's the one thing that when you say, we change the world. Yeah, but you change the world starting with you. And but let me the, flip
1: that. Let me just to elaborate on the idea that I'm getting at that I think is counterproductive, which I, I think there's a problem. I'm not saying that this is what you are advocating or encouraging, but I do think there's a problem with it even just the education system in general, telling people that they can change the world without giving them a full appreciation of history and how difficult it is to change the world. If we look at Martin Luther King, I mean, yes, was he an incredible success on many levels? Absolutely right. I mean, he accomplished one of the most difficult things, most consequential things in American history, but many of his goals obviously went unmet and obviously he paid <laughs> at the ultimate price. And he's also a once in three or four or five generation type of totally, I mean, social like- entrepreneur, to use your own term.
0: Completely. And St. Paul went to his grave thinking that his whole experiment was a total disaster. It was a fiasco. He was martyred, worked for decade after decade after decade, and he thought all his churches were going south. For all he knew, Christianity was going to be a bust. You know, that's that's the exactly. thing. I mean, that's the thing about it. But more importantly, the frustration that comes from studying the great women and men throughout history is because it does give you a sense of your own smallness. It's kind of the historical equivalent of Soviet brutalist architecture. Go by One of these huge buildings, like, I'm an ant. But that's the wrong way of thinking about it. We shouldn't say, you're going to change the world. You're probably not in a meaningful way, but you can change you, you can change your own heart, and you can probably change a couple of other hearts too. And that's really, really good. And
1: that's okay. That's not just okay.
0: That's super heroic and it's so unusual, as a matter of fact. I mean, how many people go through life and never change their own hearts? How many people go through life and they don't improve? They don't actually achieve some sort of moral excellence. And and the result of that is that the world just kind of plugs along. And so what we should do is to give people this ambition to be entrepreneurs with their own lives, to treat their own lives as a startup, because that's the ultimate startup. That's the big adventure, man. I mean, that's why you're given one life.
1: So American though. It's so, I mean, because we, we love self-help books. Right? We have to sell a hundred times more self-help books than the rest of the oh, world yeah. combined. No, no. I mean, it's it has so beautiful.
0: To be. I love it so much. And the interesting thing is that if you look at when America became America, as we understand it, it was between the Civil War and World War One, And there were two big figures during that period, a little bit after World War One, too. The first was Andrew Carnegie, who was this philanthropist. He came here, I mean, he was nothing. He was pure riffraff.
1: Wasn't he a, like a boot black? Or, yeah, or something, or something a qu- like that. He, he was just kind of a, a courier. Yeah, or something. From
0: Scott, came from Scotland, completely uneducated, blank, whole countries, as Donald Trump would say in, in those days, you know, terrible place, we shouldn't let him in. He becomes the richest man in the world. And so he dedicates himself to building English-speaking libraries. He builds 2,509 English-speaking libraries entirely for, as he called it, the working man, because he believed that people could build their own lives. Now, now the next great figure was somebody who tried to take that ideology and then popularize it which was Dale Carnegie. You know who wrote How to Win Friends and Influence People. Not related. I mean Carnegie is a common name. They basically that working out through philanthropy and the working out through philosophy is what made America into a truly great country. It made America into the country that we understand today where deep down, yeah, man, I can do it. Deep down, I'm going to kill it. Where people have this confidence and people are, by the way, where I was complaining about America and how, you know, the best years are behind us, everybody in the world wants to come here.
1: (laughs) It's still... What Every about Western Europeans? Western Europeans seem yeah, pretty Western self well, they satisfied. Western
0: Europe is kind of a combination of assisted living facility and theme park. If you look at most of the rest of the world, it's just like, holy cow, they want to come to the United States. This is where it's happening, man. It's not perfect. We can make it better, but it's still really great.
1: Do you think that's why so many on the left envy Western Europe so much when you describe it as assisted living plus theme park? Do you think that's the world that they want to create? I don't know. I don't
0: think so. I have a lot of family and friends on the left and they know they don't want that. My friends and family on the left and my colleagues, many of whom are on the political left, they want a better life that has more opportunity and that they they want the same things we do. They're Americans just like we are. Are they a little bit more European in their outlook? Yeah maybe. But they're not...
1: I think it's a misunderstanding of what Europe actually is. This what, you mean my, this, this idea that, this, that Europe this, is great? Is, well, is, I, yeah. yeah. They I, well, first of I don't think... Most of them have never lived in Europe. So obviously, you can't really understand something right. without having a direct experience in it. But then also, they have a very amateur, if not directly misunderstood concept of what Europe is. In my courses, one of the big reveals is I've tried to explain that Europe is not more liberal. Because they need to understand liberal in the classical sense. Right. That Europe is a mixture of socialist thought and actually Tory conservative thought. It's the kind of compromised state between these two things.
0: The altar and throne conservatism. Mm-hmm, exactly. Which we hate here. Right. Which we despise. Well, we,
1: we have no experience. Well, right that, what's I mean, the
0: reason that we're running away from there? Is because there was no place for those of us who are Americans in a system like that. That's why we came to the United States. We were rebelling against European conservatism. Mm-hmm. That's what we came Absolutely. to the
1: United States. Absolutely. And we kicked all of those people out. And this is a key part of our culture. This is part of why Canada is so dramatically different from us. So we have no experience, no knowledge of it. And then socialist thought is, for the most part, totally alien. In so, the United States. In the United States. These two things couldn't be more anathema to American liberalism. And to try and get them to understand, when you think of this as being liberal, this is not what it is. Mm. And so you want something that A, probably can't be brought here, and B, you don't even really understand. So if you want something, you probably should, at minimum, get your head (laughs) around what it is. The thing is that you
0: are... That's the same thing, but everybody does that. They always want something that is either in a different place or in a different time. The attraction for a lot of people on the political left is, I don't know, Denmark. The attraction for people on the political right is the 1950s. They're both different places and different times. And and, and,
1: again, they have their own problems. Yeah, I don't want to go
0: back to the 1950s. I don't want that. It was less good. And I don't want to go to Denmark because it's less good by my American standards. Now, by the way, the Danes like it. Good for them. They got the lives that they actually want. But my great-grandparents immigrated from Denmark, right? Why? Oh, you are Danish. Yeah, okay. yeah, Why? Because they were the wrong religion, and they were poor, and they were orphans, and they were illiterate, and there was nothing for them in Denmark. They were they had this weird sort of genetic mutation, a hypomanic edge that got them on the boat. And so I don't want to go back there because I'm the great-grandson of my great-grandparents,
1: well, and your culture is different. I mean, you're part of a different culture, part a, of a different yeah. ideology. I mean, what do you think of the, somebody like Richard Hofstetter famously said, America is an ideology?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's the idea that America is an idea, not a place. That's the difference between patriotism and nationalism in its way. And so big debate going on right now because there are a lot of people who are saying, no, 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 actually, it's a place. You can't love an idea. You can love a group of people who live in a particular place. And so the concept of, of love of country for a lot of people, it takes us to more of a nationalist position. And the truth is there's always been some nationalism in the United States. On the other hand, I travel a lot. It's fun. And one of the things that I love, I just shot a movie and a lot of it was shot in a documentary film called The Pursuit and a lot of it was shot in a slum in India. And man, those guys are Americans in their hearts. It is amazing when so you see So you're,
1: you're very much referring to America as an idea. I then. think ha- yeah. I,
0: I dig Hofstetter. The thing that what makes me love this country so very much is the aspiration and the sense of possibility. I subscribe to the relatively controversial notion, or at least I find find it attractive that there's a genetic mutation for entrepreneurship that is related to and expressed through hypomania. So hypomania is a little bit of craziness where you, oh, sure. you really want to do these entrepreneurial things. It's extremely unusual in populations, in European and other populations. If you create a place where the hypomanics who've got this genetic mutation are going to go from all different cultures, from all different races, from all different regions, and then you make that into a country, what was once the mutation becomes the norm. That's also known as America. But woe no, be unto inter- you—
1: That's an interesting way of putting it.
0: That mutation will work itself out of your culture, out of your country over a few generations, unless you continue to cultivate it and to magnetize your country for it by making it an idea. And what I'm talking about is immigration. That's okay. the reason that we need lots of immigration. We need lots of hustlers. We need lots of dreamers.
1: The opposite of the wall.
0: Yeah. It's like, I understand the wall because this is a border issue that is a, basically a prosaic issue of national security and sovereignty. But the concept of cutting immigration per se – is really really wrong headed. We have 85,000 H1B visas into this country is a quota. That's insane. Anybody who comes to this country and does their bachelor's degree should get a green card. Maybe let's take their passports. Let's make them stay. I mean, this is I'm joking of course. But <laughs> but you know, you need to cultivate an entrepreneurial society to keep this crazy. But why
1: does it have to happen with a large degree of immigration? I mean, doesn't immigration hurt the most vulnerable?
0: Well, there's a lot of data that contradict that. And what I'm talking about when I talk about H1B visas by the way, That has nothing to do with the vulnerable because this is high-skilled immigration in the United States. And high-skilled immigrants on average create 5.1 jobs for native-born American jobs Mm -hmm. on average. So this is really, really good for the economy and it's a really good thing to do. Low-skilled immigration, on the other hand, is another issue, and people have to decide what their ethical position on that is. My own view is that low-skilled immigration is really super entrepreneurial, just like high-skilled immigration is. I also am pretty persuaded by the data that suggests there's not that much competition between low-skilled immigrants who speak English or who don't speak English and low-skill, low-wage Americans who do speak English because they tend to be in different job markets. That said, of course, there's going to be some displacement, so we need to take care of that with enough imagination in our social safety net and our education programs to make sure that people can skill up. Otherwise, we're just laissez-faire, man. So let's just hope that everything works itself out. I think that we can have it all. I think that see this. I, I see, see this, think this in can, you. T- you t- you tend to hedge this all. way. Yeah, I think that we can have it all. Your... I mean, I just don't think it's a zero sum. It's not a fixed pie. I think that we can have both of these good and beautiful things where we have more people who are leavening our society, more people who are coming here. It's like, yeah, I love America. Bring it on. I want the culture. I want the adventure. And at the same time, the people who have been left behind in our society, I think that we can lift them up. I think we can have a social safety net that provides for their needs and education and where we should not have to have hungry people. We have plenty of money. We have plenty of expertise. And what we really need now is the mercy and the aspiration the inspiration, and we need to work together, which is why this is an important podcast.
1: Absolutely. So one last question here. I mean, you said this in one of the books, you said people are losing confidence in American exceptionalism. I think you said it almost exactly like this, almost verbatim. And you have an interesting take on poverty in terms of how we combat poverty, that if I kind of spin these two things together, it seems like your idea is to grow the economy as much as possible, but also a somewhat of a reinsertion of traditional values, traditional ways of thinking. And I think you call it the optimism of opportunity. Mm-hmm. And this kind of plays itself out. Well, yes, there's always going to be some kind of inequality. This is natural to the liberal capitalist system. But if things are functioning appropriately, the poor will continue to be lifted up further and further. And that this is no matter what better than the alternative, which is incredible bureaucracy, what you described yourself as, what did you say, assisted living plus a theme park? A theme park. <laughs> okay. right. It's so, not right. So, My
0: wife is you know from Barcelona. She's not going to be especially appreciative of that. Yeah, yeah. Of
1: course, the implication that you have there is that this isn't going to last for yeah. for much for too much not longer. In state. Yeah, not in this right. current state. Not in yeah. current well, state.
0: Is Barcelona, by the way. Spain, between now and 2050, will lose 25% of its population. That's not a growth strategy.
1: None of the European countries are growing except through immigration. They're not having a kids. Bit. I mean, some of them yeah. are
0: sort of... a Sweden is, is sort of a replacement. France is sort of getting there by paying people to have kids. That's pretty dystopian. Anyway, go on with your point.
1: If this is the only alternative, which is realistically probably not going to be brought here to America, or you know, some kind of totalitarian system with imposed leveling, this is a complicated sell and not an easy sell, for, especially for young people. So you seem to be pretty good at summarizing things. Give me a quick sell.
0: So if you want to talk about how to combat poverty, you have to talk fundamentally not about money. You have to talk about dignity. The essence of human dignity is to be needed. The essence of losing your sense of dignity is to feel unnecessary, is to feel superfluous. The big mistake that we've made in America over the, our well-intentioned attempts to lift people out of poverty, in many cases, we've alleviated material need in a very big way. But the big mistake that we've made is telling people that they're charity cases, teaching them that they're superfluous. This strips them of their dignity. And furthermore, it's an incredibly classist way to strip people of their dignity, to say, because you're poor, you're less necessary. That's what we're telling them again and again and again. The right way to think about people at the margins of society, whether they're immigrants or whether they were born here, but they're at the margins of our society. To think, What can I do to make more people needed today in their families, in their communities, and in the economy? What can I do? That's what I really want to do. And answering that question is the adventure of our time. You know, what can we do with our education system that makes people actually, it's like, forget training people along the lines that we've always done before. What can I do so that they're actually needed in something? I I don't care if it's welding or driving a taxi or working on a farm or being a university professor like you and me. I don't care. I want them to be needed because the essence of feeling your dignity, the essence of shedding your sense of envy and wanting to live in a place is a positive first derivative, man, it's, a, it's I'm going up. I'm not going to put my hand in somebody else's pocket if I'm going in the right direction effectively because then my life is – I got it going on. And that's what we want for everybody, make people needed and avoid things that make people less
1: necessary, then we're on the right track. Well, we, unfortunately, are out of time, Hmm. which I do say unfortunately, because I really wish that we could talk for another hour. I have the sense that you could talk for another three (laughs) or four. (laughs) Um, I'm about to
0: go give a speech here at Arizona State University, which, by the way, is one of the great entrepreneurial universities um, in in the United States, and I think the model for the future. You really signed on. Congratulations for being part of a...
1: I'm very... I couldn't be more thrilled to be here. I can here. tell you. Yeah, love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And, Absolutely. and this is...
0: I love this podcast. Congratulations on what I think is going to be a really big deal.
1: Appreciate it. Yeah. I really appreciate you being here. And I hope that I will get to talk to you on this podcast or in some other capacity soon.
0: Absolutely. Right on. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to Keeping It Civil, a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. If you'd like to learn more about our classes or events or the requirements for a major or minor at the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership, go to scetl.asu.edu to learn more. This podcast was produced by Duncan Minch with audio production assistance from Central Sound at Arizona PBS. Thanks for listening.